Welcome to The Wheel, a Collegium Institute podcast, hosted by Collegium Student Fellows together with senior members of our team. This podcast features interviews with visiting scholars and faculty authors of new work that help us to appreciate the shape of life today, both in its dynamism and in its timelessness. Here we approach the mysteries of reality with wonder, exploring from a wide variety of disciplinary angles, all of which revolve around a core commitment to the unity of truth. Here, authors make the case for how and why their books are important, not just for specialists in their own field, but for all of us inside the university and out who seek wisdom for a life well lived. Welcome, everybody, to The Wheel, the official podcast of the Collegium Institute. My name is Sebastian Neri. I'm your host. I am a student of philosophy and history at the University of Drexel. And I'm joined here by Dr. Joshua Stuklik. He is a professor of philosophy at the University of St. Thomas, here doing research at our Anscombe Archive. He earned his PhD at the University of Pittsburgh in 2011 and has recently written a book called Intention and Wrongdoing in Defense of Double Effect, which we are here to discuss today. Dr. Joshua Stuklik, thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me, Sebastian, and thank you for all the listeners. So to get right into it, what is the principle of double effect? This is a book about ethics, and it's addressing the topic of the principle of double effect, which many see as an antiquated idea, but you wrote this entire book defending it. So could you explain to our listeners what the principle of double effect is and why does it matter? Sure. Yeah, thanks. So it turns out there's actually several different versions of the principle of double effect, or sometimes I'll just say PDE to abbreviate. Some of these versions of it are really ambitious. They try to state necessary and sufficient conditions for the moral permissibility of any action that has both positive and negative effects. If you think about it, most of our actions do have both positive and negative effects. So uh, that would be a really ambitious principle. But the version that I try to defend in my book is uh, more modest than that. It says basically two things. It says, first of all, that there's a strict moral constraint or prohibition against bringing about a serious evil or, or harm for an innocent person intentionally. Uh, but second, that it is permissible in a wider range or a wider variety of circumstances to act in a way that brings about serious evil incidentally as a foreseen but not intended side effect. So the PDE then attributes moral significance to a distinction between what a person does or brings about intentionally on the one hand and what he simply foresees will recur as a result of his action on the other. Sometimes it's difficult to draw the line between intention and foresight, but there's also lots of really clear illustrations out there, I think. So for example, it's exam time this time of year, right? Everyone's wrapping up their exams. Uh, we professors are grading lots of exams and assignments. We know that assigning grades is going to cause some of our students to feel lots of anxiety and disappointment right, at their grades. But I can assure you that for us, or at least for most of us, uh, that's not our intention in assigning grades, right? To make you feel bad or anxious. Uh, our intention right, is rather to give you a fair and accurate assessment of your work. And, you know, everyone's probably familiar with taking medication. We know, right, you're a bottle of medication, it says on it, might have side effects, right? You might get some discomfort as a side effect, but you don't intend to take the medication to cause this discomfort in yourself, right? You cause it to have whatever beneficial effects the medicine's supposed to have. So in every case, what you do intentionally then 
is determined by we could say your goals or your purposes in acting, right? Whether it's a goal at, like as your ultimate end or as the means to your end, while the the incidental side effects are not among your goals and purposes. There are other effects that your actions bring about. And double effect basically attributes moral significance to that distinction between intention and foresight. If it's true, then it's very difficult or perhaps even impossible to justify intentionally killing or otherwise seriously harming innocent people. But there are circumstances in which it would be morally permissible to act in a certain way when that brings about evil incidentally as a foreseen side effect. So why does this, uh, why does this principle matter? Why does the PD matter? Well, I think it matters because it matters how we should treat people. As Elizabeth Anscombe remarked in some of her published papers, murder is one of the very worst things that one human being could do to another human being. But even though many killings are murderous, it seems that not all killings are murderous. For example, think of like soldiers fighting in a just war. They don't murder enemy combatants when they kill them to protect the common good of their political community. Or suppose it had been possible to shoot down one of the airplanes that hit the Twin Towers on 9-11 before that plane could hit its target. I at least don't think that the government would have murdered the passengers on board the plane if they had destroyed it in advance. So that makes it really important then to know where we should draw the line between killings that are murders or that are otherwise wrongful in some way and killings that aren't. And double effect, as I understand it, doesn't give a complete account of this, but it does give us at least a partial account. For if it's true, then it's at least very typically wrong to intentionally kill innocent people. Though killing that occurs at a, as a side effect is permissible in a wider variety of circumstances, like that hypothetical 9-11 case I just mentioned. Mm. So one of the ways that you describe the principle of double effect in the book is as a non-consequentialist theory of ethics. Can you give a brief overview of the major ethical theoretical categories for our listeners to understand what that means and then elaborate on that, if you would? Sure. Yeah. So today it's, it's very common to distinguish between the big three ethical theories. And the first is consequentialism, right? Double effect is a non-consequentialist principle. And the, the basic idea behind consequentialist uh, ethical theories is that what ultimately matters for determining the moral status of an action is its outcome or its consequences. So the most famous version of this theory is probably Jeremy Bentham's act utilitarianism, right? Which says that in any situation, the right thing to do is to perform that action that maximizes, as he puts it, the greatest happiness for the greatest number of people, where he understood happiness in terms of pleasure, and he understood pleasures as all having kind of equal value. There are all kinds of variations on consequentialism. Some of them are much more sophisticated than that simple account of Bentham's, but what they all share in common is just the idea that when we're going to evaluate the morality of someone's action, the focus of that evaluation should be on its consequences, right, on its outcomes. Opposed to consequentialism is Immanuel Kant's deontological moral philosophy. So Kant held that the foundation of morality lies not in producing good outcomes or good consequences, but in doing our duty as rational agents. And the supreme principle of morality from which we derive all of our duties for Kant is the categorical imperative. And Kant gave several different formulations of this principle, but the most well-known are probably his formula of universal law, which says that we should only act on maxims or policies that we can will as universal law, and the formula of humanity, which says that we should treat rational nature, right, rational beings, always as an end in itself and never simply as a means to an end. Kant held that this imperative, the categorical imperative, stems from the, from the will, which he understood as practical reason, 
so that it's a law that we give to ourselves and is the same for all rational beings. Finally, the third big theory is virtue ethics, and virtue ethics ethicists look to ancient and medieval philosophers for inspiration. Classical philosophers like Plato and Aristotle um, and St. Thomas Aquinas were interested in the virtues and instilling the virtues in us as qualities of mind and qualities of character that make us good as specifically as human beings and as fit for living, flourishing human lives. It's still kind of a matter of contention today how exactly virtue ethics relates to the other two theories. The difference is often put in terms of like which concept is most emphasized foundationally, where consequentialists emphasize outcomes, deontologists emphasize rules or principles, and virtue ethicists put the emphasis on virtue or character. But it's really not clear to me, at least, that that's totally adequate. So for example, one of my heroes is Thomas Aquinas in ethics, and he organizes the ethical part of his work, the Summa Theologiae, around the virtues, but he associates each of these virtues with certain rules or, or what he calls them precepts. And he also grounds his ethical theory in a concept of natural or divine law. And while Elizabeth Anscombe is often credited as playing the major role in reviving virtue ethics in the 20th century, she believed in absolute prohibitions and was really critical of what she called the peculiar, the peculiarly moral use of the word ought, which she saw as being a creation of uh, what she called modern moral philosophy. So going based on that, one of the reasons you're here is to look through our Anscombe archive. And Elizabeth Anscombe herself, one of the great 20th century analytical philosophers, is often credited with coining this term consequentialism. So can you explain how consequentialism influenced her work and how the PDE fits into this bigger project? Yeah, great. So Anscombe is actually credited for coining this word consequentialism in her famous 1958 essay, Modern Moral Philosophy. And you might think that what she meant by consequentialism is just what I was just talking about as consequentialism, right? That would make a lot of sense. But actually, while what she called consequentialism is related to consequentialist moral theories that I described earlier, they're really actually not exactly the same. In her usage, what she meant by consequentialism was supposed to apply to any kind of view or any theory that holds that there are no types of action that are just so bad that it might not at least sometimes be justified by the good consequences that performing that kind of action produces, right? So on her definition, basically anyone who denies the existence of absolute moral prohibitions, right, which just totally forbids some sort of action in any, in any situation, anyone who denies absolute moral prohibitions counts as being consequentialist. How does this connect to the PDE? Well, she thought that the key then to resisting consequentialism, right, in that sense, in her sense, was to hold that this, the distinction between intention and foresight is morally significant. So, for example, she holds that there's an absolute prohibition on committing murder. And she also holds that the what she calls the hard core of murder is the intentional killing of innocent people. So it follows then on her view that you must never intentionally kill innocent people, no matter what consequences threaten if you do not. And she famously applied this idea to the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, something she's really well known for. Even if we grant that the bombings saved a huge number of lives, both Japanese and American, Anscombe famously argued that the bombings were still wrong, on the ground that they involved intentionally killing thousands of innocent Japanese civilians. The contrary position that you often hear, right, that at least in this case, 
the bombings were justified as the, the lesser evil, even if killing is typically wrong, that's a great example of what she would call consequentialism in her sense. So could I follow up with you sure. real quick about this issue of the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Because you mentioned in the book that Anscombe took a very hard stance against it, but that some of her reasoning might have been based on faulty information, perhaps. So could you explain some of the thinking around that um, and her reasoning for why she took that position and why maybe it's a little more complicated than we originally expected? Yeah, well, you know, I don't I don't think the main argument that she was making was flawed. I think the main reasoning that she's drawing on is, again, drawing on double effect and on this prohibition against intentionally harming the innocent. Where I think maybe where she wasn't fully informed was she thought that what was creating the situation where we had to use the atomic bombing was a, a demand for unconditional surrender. And she thought that if we had given the Japanese better terms, like retaining the, the emperor or guaranteeing that the emperor would be retained, that, that they might have agreed to those peace terms. And it wouldn't even made either invading Japan or using an atomic bomb, even a situation we had to be in. What we now know, though, is that the American radio intelligence had actually found out that the Japanese themselves had, some of their ambassadors had raised this possibility and that the Japanese leadership had explicitly rejected that, that they, that they wouldn't do that. So for that reason, I don't know if unconditional surrender was what really led to the situation of our having to use the atomic bombs in the first place or to avoid a ground invasion, that is. However, um, I, I do think that her moral argument that it was wrong to use the bombs on the ground that involved intentionally killing Japanese civilians. I do think that's correct. Mm. So since you've been here exploring the archive, have you found anything particularly of interest? Yeah, you know, I've only spent one day at the archive so far, and I kind of feel like the proverbial child who's trying to drink from a fire hose, right? So what I'm really interested in, um, given my own interest, is Anscombe's writings on ethics, justice, and murder, and the morality of killing. And there are really, there are several dozen items in the archive that pertain to those themes. And many of these writings deal with the same sorts of issues that Anscombe also discusses in her published writings. But I found that they give them much more texture and in some case expand on what she's written in her published writings. So I, I'm really looking forward to doing, to being in there longer and doing more research this week. Great. So to circle back to some of the more abstract discussion of the PDE itself, you set up a dichotomy in the book between absolutist and non-absolutist approaches to the principle of double effect. What exactly does this mean? Yeah, so that distinction, it goes back to the idea that, that we were talking about earlier about absolute prohibitions and whether the prohibition or constraint against intentional harm is an example of one of those, right? So the absolutist version of the PDE holds that that constraint against intentional harm is absolute, that we must never intentionally kill or seriously harm the innocent, no matter what good might come from doing so or what matter, no matter what evil it might prevent. So in the case of killing, at least, that's, that's definitely Anscombe's view. The non-absolutist version of the principle holds that while intentionally killing or harming the innocent is much, much more difficult to justify than incidentally killing or harming the innocent, there could be extreme circumstances in which the constraint against intentional harm is overridden. So the non-absolutist version of the principle is, is therefore consequentialist in Anscombe's sense of the term, though it's not consequentialist in the sense that term is more commonly employed in moral philosophy today, because it says intentions matter, right? Not just outcomes. 
So I think the difference between the two versions, it could be really usefully illustrated by an example of what the philosopher Michael Walzer called a supreme emergency situation, right? So just imagine that your country is fighting against some unjust enemy. And the enemy is not only is it on the brink of victory, but if they win, you know they're going to exterminate or enslave your entire population. Your only real chance to win would be to use a weapon that would involve intentionally killing civilians, right? So think about the American use of nuclear weapons at the end of the Second World War, right? Can you use them? It's open to the non-absolutist to say yes. In that situation, that normal constraint against deliberately killing innocent people on the opposing side would be overridden. So you can use the weapon. But an absolutist about the PDE would take a much harder line here, right? Saying that even here, you must not use the weapon. I don't try to settle that debate about moral absolutes in my book, but I think it's a really important issue. I think it was really important to Anscombe. The reason is just because there's currently a lot of skepticism out there about whether the intentional incidental distinction has any moral relevance at all. And there's even more skepticism out there about moral absolutes. So I just want to try to tackle one thing at a time. But I say in the book's conclusion, my own sympathies are with Anscombe here, although I realize that's really controversial. Indeed. So to expand a little further on some of the other details you mentioned in the book as far as elaborating on the principle of double effect, you mentioned, too, the principle of proportionality and the principle of due care. What are these two principles and how do they fit into this whole idea of the principle of double effect? Yeah, great. So. Remember that the version of double effect that I defend, I said it's modest, right? Because it doesn't try to state a set of sufficient conditions under which it would be permissible to act in a way that brings about incidental harm. Um, however, that said, I believe that we can provide at least partial guidance on some necessary conditions for the permissibility of incidental harm. And that's where those principles of proportionality and due care come in. So just to review what those principles are, according to the principle of proportionality, it's permissible to pursue a course of action, right, that brings about incidental harm, or you could say collateral damage, only if that harm is not disproportionate to the value of the end that's being pursued, right? So roughly what that means is that the badness of the side effect harm can't outweigh whatever good the agent's conduct aims at achieving, right? So an example of this would be like, suppose you have a case, we have a pilot, a bomber pilot, and he destroys an enemy airfield, um, has some military significance, but fairly minor military significance, but it ends up costing dozens of civilian casualties in the process, right? That would be disproportionate. That would fail the principle of proportionality. On the other hand, the principle of due care says that it's permissible to pursue a course of action that brings about incidental harm, only if all reasonable steps are taken to avoid or minimize that harm, right? So again, like think about the context of warfare. It would be wrong to bomb, I think, an adversary's military installation that's, say, situated next to a civilian office building during working hours, even if the loss of life would be proportionate. If that installation could also be effectively bombed during a day of the week or a time of day when civilians aren't present at all. So together, I think that the principles of proportionality and due care do is they tell us that any incidental harm or collateral damage that we cause should not be either excessive or gratuitous. That makes sense. Now, to bring the PDE from the abstract into the concrete, what are some of the important ways in which you think the PDE can be applied to our modern understanding of ethics? Or in other words, what are some of the problems that you think it can help us solve? Great. So the, the examples I've given so far, right, with um, Anscombe and the atomic bombings and some of my own illustrations, 
go back to the ethics of war. And that's really the focus of my book. Um, that's where I really concentrate on in my book. Because it, according to traditional just war theory, um, engaging in war can sometimes be just and right, right? At least if certain conditions are met. That's what says just war theorists apart from pacifists. They think war can sometimes be justified. But just war theory also holds, and here they contradict so-called realists about war, that there are moral constraints on how a community fights a war once it's begun. And in particular, according to the just war principle of discrimination, combatants always have to discriminate between enemy combatants and military targets on the one hand, and the adversary's non-combatant population on the other, right? So non-combatants are immune to being directly attacked. And so they must never be intentionally targeted in military operations. However, that doesn't mean that it's always impermissible to engage in operations that cause harm to non-combatants. So just war theory does recognize that some degree of incidental harm or collateral damage is just going to be inevitable under conditions of modern warfare. But it does hold that incidental harm has to always meet standards like the principle of proportionality and the principle of due care. So in other words, I think, well, double effect is central to just war theory. Beyond that, double effect also has a substantive role to play in bioethics. Just to give one example of this, an area that's really highly debated today, of course, is the ethics of end-of-life care. And both Christian and secular philosophers have raised some objections, particularly to euthanasia, which involves intentionally killing a patient by a doctor, right, for reasons to avoid suffering. However, there are other forms of palliative care that are widely regarded as being legitimate, even though they foreseeably involve shortening the patient's life. So one example of this is this practice in the past that's sometimes been called terminal sedation, where you have a patient who's suffering unbearable pain and they're given a dose of pain-relieving drugs, which also have the effect of suppressing respiration. Now, what's the moral difference between these practices, right? If we're going to hold that terminal sedation is all right, wh why say that's okay, but euthanasia is not, right? How do we discriminate them? Proponents of double effect argue, well, it lies in the, in the physician's intentions, right? Only euthanasia involves an intention to kill. Hmm. So now that we've explored the theory, the argument, and the application behind the principle of double effect, what are some of the major objections that people will raise to this idea? Yeah, great. So there's a lot of objections and challenges to double effect out there. I, I try to canvas what I think are the most important ones in my book. Maybe I can just mention two or three now. I think the most important challenge is what I, in the book I call it the grounding challenge. And the grounding challenge is just basically this. Why should that distinction between intention and foresight, why should that be considered morally significant? Why should that distinction matter for ethics? That challenge, I think that's just a really basic challenge, right? And I think it goes right to the heart of normative ethics about what sort of factors or features of our actions have normative significance. So I actually devote two whole chapters of the book to the grounding challenge. And my answer to it involves developing a rationale for double effect that grounds it in a standard of solidarity among human beings and ultimately in a notion of human dignity. Now, related to the grounding challenge, there's this objection that the distinction between what we do intentionally and what we do incidentally has basically to do with our psychology, right? So to speak, what's the matter, what's going on in our heads while we're acting? And people wonder, well, you know, why should what's going on in someone's head matter for the moral permissibility of their actions? And in answer to that sort of question, uh, I argue in the book that the 
intentional incidental distinction is really not solely about what's going on in the agent's mind, as opposed to what's happening in the world, as the objection kind of makes it out to be. Here again, we come back to Anscombe, right? Um, Anscombe argues in her masterwork, Intention, that our term intentional describes what she calls a form of description of events, right? a form of description of things happening in the world, where one thing is happening for the sake of other things. And while that sort of form of description of events, while, it, while it's truth in any situation, depends on something going on in the agent's mind, like what the agent has concluded in their practical reasoning and what they're choosing to do, that doesn't mean that it's something purely mental or purely interior. Right. Now, my final question, because most of our listeners are college-age individuals like myself, what should a college student take away from this book? And how should it cause us to potentially change the way we act in the world? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, I don't know if I can fully answer that question, but I hope it at least piques your interest in ethics and the ethics of war and the morality of harm more generally. So all the issues I discuss in the book, they're all still being actively studied and actively debated by philosophers today. You know, as to as to what to do about it, if you're interested in the issue, I think that uh, no better place to start than Anscombe's published writings, especially the third volume of her collected papers. And there's this um, book called Human Life, Action and Ethics, which was edited by Luke Gormali and Mary Geach. If you're really ambitious, I'd also recommend checking out Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics and Aristotle's Politics and the second part of the Summa Theologiae by St. Thomas, St. Thomas Aquinas. So both Anscombe's work and my own work are both heavily dependent on those two intellectual giants. So that would be my recommendation for you. Great. All right. That's all the questions I have prepared today. Again, the book is called Intention and Wrongdoing in Defense of Double Effect. Thank you, Dr. Joshua Stuklik, for joining us. Thank you, Sebastian. And thank you to all of our listeners. You've been listening to The Wheel, a Collegium Institute podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes. And to stay up to date on upcoming events and programming, visit collegiuminstitute.org.